You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All the topics for road trip have been chosen by the leadership of Salem Tabernacle. And probably, you know, April, May, I sent out, you know, some questions like, what stories would you like to hear uh, Christ preached in? And I've been choosing the ones that our deacons and our elders have uh, decided they wanted to hear. And quite a few chose the story of Jonah. And so we will be talking about that today. We're going to take a broad stroke because we can't preach the whole book. So we have to just take the big highlight points. But it's kind of hilarious and tragic at the same time, the story of Jonah. And it starts with, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which I'm going to love saying for the rest of the day, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them. Thank you. You say that too fast and all kinds of bad things can happen away from the presence of the Lord. Thousands of years later, Jesus would say, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Father God, we thank you that we can do our very best to flee from you. And in the farthest place we could go, realize you were sitting there waiting for us. So we pray that you would do that for every home represented here right now, Father God, any of us who avoid you. I pray that we would realize that we can't get away from you. In your holy name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The text of Jonah was given to ancient Israel to reorient them for a few evils that they have slowly veered into. So the story was given to them to help them realize that we will, the more healthy you are, the easier it is for you to slowly veer off into something evil. Because the slower we veer off, the harder it is to tell that we have. So when you're in a really bad season, it's easy to know, I just fell off a cliff. But when you're in a very healthy season, it's hard to see that sometimes we slowly veer. And next thing you know, we, I don't know how we got here. Now, unfortunately, God loves to allow my life to be a parable for the things he wants me to teach. And so our, one of our trustees, one of the members of our board of directors, Reed Scott, who does a fantastic job for us, by the way. Reed thought it would be fun to invite me kayaking and then to hike up Mount Beacon in the same day. I'm fat. There's no pizza at the top of Mount Beacon. So, true to form, 
This is what happened when I went kayaking. I've now gotten myself stuck in weeds, as far as the eye can see, except guess who hasn't gotten themselves stuck in weeds? Non-weed reed. Mm. No, apparently I have, like, I mean, because seriously, it's easy to miss. Till next time. I was trying to document in case I died. I wanted to document a few times to show my family that I tried. Did you see the difference? I couldn't move, and Reed could, and Reed was about five feet from me. That's the distance between getting stuck and being in a healthy place. It could be five feet. He was perfectly fine, and I was not. I was stuck in the weeds, and it's hard to row, it's hard to move, it's hard to turn around, and it's five feet from where he was, where it's easy to move. We can slowly veer and then all of a sudden get stuck. And so a story like Jonah is here to be a huge story, to not get bogged down into specifics, but let the immensity of the story help reorient us from many, many different evils that we can slowly veer off into. I'm going to give three that I want us to think about because it's in the direct context of the story. But I want us all to have the freedom to think about anywhere where you may have drifted. This story and everything I'm going to preach on is how God reorients us. He points us back to true north again. But in the story of Jonah, the first thing in the broadest scope is you realize he doesn't speak to any Israelites in the entire story. And so the first reason why this was given to the Israelites is because they needed to be reoriented from racial prejudice. They needed to be reoriented from racial prejudice. Because over the course of time, they became very confident in their Jewish race and slowly developed poor attitudes towards almost any other race. And the reality is, we're not going to beat up on the Jewish culture because every single culture represented in this room has done this time and time and time again. And the number one way we do it, the, the seed that begins the slow veer off, or we should say the current that begins to take us slowly off is when we start to make general associations about other races. So one of my favorite theologians, I'm reading this week and I'm studying, and he is critiquing an American president. He's from England, so I guess that's one of his fun things to do is to critique American presidents. And he says this, this particular president did a lot of talking about the Middle East, not realizing that most of the people he was talking to couldn't locate the Middle East on a map. And I'm like, that's probably true, but how dare you say that in a book? So my first thought back was typical European snobbery. And then the Holy Spirit stops me and says, look what you both just did. He makes a general association about us that either we're not educated or that we only care about where America is on the map. Not sure which inference he was making. And my immediate response was to generalize him. Typical European. It's that kind of associating that is the seedbed, the beginning of racism. It's when we immediately associate a particular race with a particular way of living. 
and say they do that. This particular race can't drive. This particular race always plays the victim. This particular race is rich and they don't understand anybody else. This particular race is loud. This particular race can cook. I said that last one because here's the barometer. If the association you're making can be celebrated, it's worship. If the association you're making reduces the race to that one thing, it's the beginning of racism. So if you make connections that can be celebrated, what I'm looking at right now when I scan across the room, I'm seeing God's creative ingenuity. So we have to celebrate it. We don't ignore it. But when we reduce another race to a particular evil or a particular condescending remark, that's the beginning of racism. That was happening in Israel, and so God gives them this story to help reorient them from that. I think it's important that if we're going to be the church, we lead the way in celebrating ethnic diversity. We lead the way in doing it because we know the God who created everybody different. We don't lean to one side. We celebrate all of God's creative difference. Let me hear the church say amen to that, please. Thank you. That's important. That is important. The second thing he does is he reorients us from moral prejudice by using the story of Jonah. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because they're Ninevites and also because they're horrible. As if Jonah's not. Because we will see he really shows up as glorious in this story. (laughs) Here's the thing. We veer slowly into the weeds. We veer slowly in how we want the immoral to become moral. So we would never say we don't want them to be saved. Let me pause. I hate what I just said. I use the word them, which let me apologize to all of you for saying that. You see the sin in me right now when I just said that. Whoo, the spotlight is on. I'm immoral. And so is every single person I'm looking at right now. The only difference between what we say is us and them is we now have that standing in our life. Because we're immoral, we have that in our life. So my need for that is proof that I'm no better than anyone who doesn't have it, but I need to show it to them by not being superior to them. So when we talk about the immoral in a way that constantly is harping on and revealing their sin, we're not living according to that. When we define them by what they're not, they're not holy. We need to realize, we need to have a more hospitable language, a more hopeful language. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew they would repent. He says it later in the book, I knew you were going to get them saved. Why is he upset? Because in his mind, why should it be that easy? All the things that they've done, and it's that simple, we need to have a more hopeful language. We need to, we would never say that we don't want people to become moral. But what we do, if we're willing to admit it, is we draw a line in the sand, and we say to everybody on the other side of it, life is better over here. So why don't you come over here, but don't think for a second I'm going over there to get you. See, if we had 100 sheep and one went astray, we'd be happy with the 99. 
we'd be happy with 25 and go on our merry way and say, the Lord just, he, he brought decrease into my life because he's going to bless me later. So those two things together bring us to the third point where we venture off into the weeds. And this is God reorienting us, reorienting us from our opinion prejudice. And if you didn't think you were the first one, I'm going to ask you to pray about it. If you don't think you're the second one, I'm just going to tell you right now you're wrong because we all are. And if you don't think you're this one, if you don't think that we have a problem with our opinion, my dad just laughed. (laughs) We veer slowly into trusting the particular part of our opinion that is cultivated in private. See, when my opinion is out loud, I just got called out by all of you on one of my opinions that I didn't realize I had. I said us and them. I wrote this message to destroy that. (laughs) And I said it out loud in front of everybody because I'm talking out loud. And when I'm talking out loud and I can be heard by multiple people, it's harder to cultivate a private opinion. But many of us are afraid to have that happen because we're afraid to say we just said something dumb. So we end up trusting the opinions that we think about over and over and over again in private. We have some of our public opinions, but we're driven by our private ones. And this story reorients us from all those. So how does God reorient us from veering off into racial prejudice, from veering off into moral superiority, from veering off into too much trust of our own opinion? He sends three things. He sends a storm, he sends a whale, and he sends a plant. And this is the story of Jonah. So chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. But the Lord, everybody say the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. A lot of religions on this boat. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The first thing I want to point out is that Jonah paid a fare to go onto this boat. And I laughed out loud because I thought of how many times I get generous when I'm avoiding something. Like, there's people I don't want to hang out with, so I busy myself so I don't feel bad saying I can't. I get generous with my time in other locations so I don't have to be generous with my time to you. I'm generous when it comes to avoiding you, but I'm stingy when it comes to spending time with you. So he was willing to pay to leave the presence of God. And I just wonder how many times we're generous with our money when it comes to things that we want and then we're stingy with God. We're generous with our time when it comes to avoiding God, but when it comes time to serving in his house or whatever the case may be, or serving our neighbor, or God forbid, serving someone of a different ethnicity or a lower moral standing that we don't want to, all of a sudden we act like we're broke with our time. That was just... Toss that out there. Jonah's asleep. The ability to sleep is not always Sabbath rest. Jonah is sound asleep. He needs to be woken up. They could die, and Jonah is out. How obnoxious when he wakes up and he's like, 
<sighs> wow, this weather's bad. Wonder, and everyone's like, yeah, we know. We know it's bad, and we're kind of starting to think we know why. He's like, what did I miss? I was really, I was dreaming when you woke me up. There is a peace that is not from God. There's a peace that comes to us when we've avoided him long enough and we've built private opinions around our life to make ourselves think that we're not avoiding him and we get very comfortable and very at ease in the fact that we're nowhere near where he wants us to be. This is why Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives it, do I give it. Because Jesus is letting us know that there's a peace that comes from him and there's a peace that comes from avoidance. Which is why when Jesus is in Gethsemane and his disciples fall asleep, he says, wake up and take your rest later. He's pulling them out of rest so he could get them into a more kingdom-oriented rest. But he has to wake us up from it. And this story should wake us up if we're at ease in our racial prejudice, if we're at ease in our moral superiority, even worse than those two, if we're at ease in our own private opinion. He's yelling, wake up! He will not let us rest in that moment. That is not the kind of rest he's looking for. He would rather us be exhausted. He wants to exhaust us of trusting in ourselves. He wants to exhaust us of constantly veering off into the weeds and acting like, well, maybe God just wanted me to see weeds today. No, he didn't. <laughs> he wanted you to kayak down the Hudson and get to the bridge. Well, you know, he turned the tides, and so now I'm here. No, it's because I don't know how to row, and I wasn't listening. The weeds were a gift because I got better at it for the rest of the day because I didn't want to be back there again. Reed, I thank you for nodding. I didn't get that much better, but a little bit. There's an infinite distance between zero and one. And so I went from zero to one, which is the greatest leap you could possibly make. Everything else is whatever. Whew, that was the time. When Jonah realizes that it is... The storm's there because of him. He realizes it. He says, you guys are right. And then he says, throw me overboard. You cannot miss this detail. He repented. He realized that this is him. And he says, I'm still not going to be able to get myself off this boat. Just because we have the epiphany where we're wrong, just because we have the revelation of where we need to turn, this story is telling us you need the person sitting next to you to toss you into the place you need to go because even with the knowledge that you should be there, you can't get there by yourself. And let me tell you, the church is here to cover you, to protect you, but also to throw your behind in the water if you're not where you're supposed to be. All right. We got some people, I just tried to throw you off, and you're holding on to the side of the boat. Like, I'm not going. <laughs> you see, the storm is not a product of our sin. The storm is a product of God's approach. The storm is not punishment. The storm is God saying, no matter how far you go, I'm coming for you. And we spend all of our time trying to rebuke the storm when we should be trying to find Jesus in it. Because Jesus also sleeps in a boat in the gospel stories, and the disciples have to go wake him up. 
But Jesus is the true inventor Jonah who doesn't sleep in the boat because he is avoiding God's presence. But he shows us how to rest in storm because he is the presence of God. Jesus is the only one who can rebuke a storm. Our job is to find him, not rebuke it. We're standing on the bow trying to rebuke what only he can rebuke. We need to be going to say, if you're in a storm right now, your question is not, what does this mean? What is it trying to tell me? Your question isn't even, how do I obey? Your question is, where is Jesus right now? I need to find him right now. And once I find him, I'm going to let him work the rest of this out. But my job is to find him and hold on to him. And then you'll realize your storm was a gift because it got you to him. And maybe if there wasn't a storm, you would have been too comfortable to realize he was never in the boat in the first place. So they toss him overboard. Like, you ever have that moment where you're hoping people don't agree with you? You know what, guys? This is my fault. I'm sorry. Why don't you toss me overboard? Okay. (laughs) You're like, I was really hoping that you would be nicer than that. I'm skipping over the part where everybody on the boat gets saved that had different religions because when we're faithful with our storm, instead of trying to get out of it, people may see Jesus. When we're honest about our sin in the storm, people may see Jesus instead of trying to over-spiritualize that he's getting me ready for something better. I'm just going to skip over that part I said. I wasn't going to preach on it. I was just going to skip over it for a second. Where God forbid people see that we're just like them, if not worse, and so they realize maybe it's not a threatening place and I can worship this God where that guy was willing to be thrown into the storm because maybe Jesus is the true and better Jonah who didn't need to be tossed off by us, but he went willingly down into the waters of death. I'm going to skip over that part. (laughs) So then the next fun thing that happens is a whale swallows him. So now, the, second, the first thing God does to reorient us out of the weeds is he sends storms, and they're his presence. And then he sends something to swallow us. Listen, loneliness is not the result of God's displeasure, but his desire to get your attention. And I'm going to be very careful. He doesn't create loneliness. A trinity can't create loneliness, you understand, because God is never alone even when he's by himself. A trinity cannot create loneliness, but what he does is very interesting. The loneliness is not Jonah in the whale. The loneliness is when he's sinking in the sea. Because this is exactly a metaphor for loneliness. It's getting darker the more I try to move. The more I try to breathe, the more I suffocate. The deeper I go, the more pressure is on my body. With every foot deeper into loneliness, I feel like I'm about to explode. And as Jonah says, now I can't see anything. Now the weeds are entangled around my feet. My whole body's sinking and I can't breathe. This is loneliness. What God does is he sends us something in the deep to swallow us so we can breathe. He doesn't cause loneliness, but he inhabits loneliness. I'm not going to wait for the end of this section to give you the punchline. Jesus is the true and better whale who sinks where we sink, who's down in the deep that we got tossed into, but who takes us into himself so that we can breathe even in the dark. If he could take a breath in a tomb, 
we could breathe in our loneliness. And so it's in the whale. We have to read this. Jonah 2, verse 6. He's in the belly of the fish, and it says, I went down. Everybody say down. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He's saying that as my body sinks, something inside of me is rising. The farther down I go into my mess, and the more I realize that with every foot I go down, you're still here. You're deeper than my mess. You have fallen farther down than I could ever fall. The more I still have his presence, even in the grip of loneliness, the more my faith starts to rise. As my body sinks, my heart starts to rise because he swallows us in our loneliness so we can breathe, so we can think, so we can pray. And the reality is the more we try to get out of it, We're going to use all of our breath. We're going to use all of our ability. And we're going to fall exhausted. But when we realize that he is swallowing your loneliness and he's pulling it into himself, in that space, Jonah starts to sing words that have citations to 30 different psalms. He starts to sing praises. He starts to say thank you. He starts to worship in this place. There's something about allowing our loneliness to have its work, allowing God to interrupt our loneliness. So we breathe, and we realize, I don't think I've ever been lonely. Even though I don't have the kind of relationship I want, or even though I'm stuck in the kind of relationship I don't want to be stuck in, something just swallowed me that's giving me a chance to breathe. And... Loneliness is when we disdain what we have or we covet what we don't have. And getting swallowed by Christ fixes that. But here's where anger comes in. If right now we were going to be perfectly honest with ourselves, if right now we were going to say, God, in, in, with exactly what I have right now in my life, I want you to be enough. There's a part of us that really would love that. To, in the midst of what you have, that you want to have and what you don't have that you wish you had and in the midst of what you have that you wish you didn't have, if in the middle of all that you said, make it so that I could know that you're enough exactly in what I'm in. There's a part of us that would long for that. But our idolatry would be so upset with that. Because to say God is enough is to let go of what I want. To say God is enough is to say I'm okay with what I have that I wish I didn't. And like Jonah, there's a part of us that's still a bit stingy there. I really want him to be enough. But there is a part of me that fights that. Because if he was enough right now, I wouldn't need to get rid of anything I have. And I wouldn't need to get anything more that I don't have. And there's a part of me that would long for that freedom. And there's a part of me that hates the thought of it. We need to let the story play with us toss us overboard in our own comforts and swallow us again so we can learn where we have veered off. And then, maybe the, the strangest part of all of it is Jonah goes to Nineveh. 
And he's so obstinate when he does. Jonah 3, we're going to skip. Jonah 3, 3 to 4. So he gets tossed overboard. He gets swallowed by a whale for three days. And lo and behold, he's got a little bit of motivation now. Because whether for good reasons, because he was actually changed, or I don't want to get swallowed by a whale again, whatever that is. He's like, I'll go to Nineveh. And it says this. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath. So it would take three days to go from one side of Nineveh to the other. Jonah began, everybody say began. Every word is so important in such a short book. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. It's a three-day journey to get from one side to the other. Jonah went less than halfway in. He went enough in to say that he did. It's like, clean your room. I put something away. Technically, I've cleaned. You didn't say how much. It's now slightly neater than it was before. I've obeyed. He goes just far enough in And he says, in 40 days, you're all going to be overthrown. And he leaves. It takes him less time to walk in and walk out than it would have for him to walk all the way through. He barely went in. What is this telling us? Our reluctance exposes quite a bit. We need to be reoriented. His anger reveals his prejudice. He'd rather sit with his friends, and call out against Nineveh than actually go in and be seen as someone who associated with it and is the product of why it has changed. Which tells me that he doesn't really believe the change is going to last. Why do we know this? Because they repent. And it says he goes outside the city and sits down to watch what will become of it. Because something in his mind was saying, They did that today, but I know these kinds of people. So I'm going to sit over here and watch what I believe will inevitably happen. And day after day, they're fine. And he's getting more and more angry. He spends more time watching and waiting to see what might happen than he does enjoying the beauty and the gift of the moment he's in. When we're morally superior, when we are racially superior, when we have those mentalities, or even outside of those two twin monsters of moralism and racism, when we just believe our own opinion is superior, we will accept things, but we've all said, wow, you know, so-and-so looks like they're doing really well. Just watch. Just wait a few days. I know they're in another relationship, but just wait. Oh, man, I know they were worshiping on Sunday, but, you know, let's see where they are in a year. We cannot worship God in the present if we're always projecting what might happen. We could be in the present and be robbed of it at the same time. And this doesn't sound like a gripping kind of evil, but what Elder Paul said when he opened the service this morning and he said, the joy of the Lord is our strength, that is a right now word. 
What God might do tomorrow is not the source of my joy. Him being in my life right now, existing for me and not against me. That's where my joy is coming from right now. Right now. Yes, hope brings joy. Yes, all of those things. But the source of it is him right now. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, but it's the I am part that is amazing. I am right now the Alpha and the Omega. He doesn't say I will be. It's the I am part that's the source of our joy, the right now reality of God. So if somebody gets better that we know will eventually get worse again, rejoice while they're better. Be happy for them while they're better. Man, if God ever, if Jesus ever sat down and projected on me, I'm happy he's also in the present. And he's happy with my right now. Because my 10 minutes from now might not be so great. I don't even know if my right now is that great. I'm happy he's very easy to please. Amen? Imagine Jesus was high maintenance. Whew. We would all be in a lot of trouble. Let's read about this plant at the very end of the story. Jonah 4. Jonah's sitting out there watching to see what would happen. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. How many know God really does like to save us from our discomfort? You all know the rest of the section, so nobody's excited, but God does want to save us from our discomfort. Okay, I'm happy about it. So God, take all of theirs and just give it to me then, please. So Jonah was exceedingly glad, unlike everybody at Salem, because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. See, now I'm nervous, because that happened to me on Friday, and I forgot to wear a hat, and I don't have much covering. Jonah was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough even to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jesus is the true and better plant. Because at the same moment, Jesus is both our life and our death. He covers us and exposes us at the same time. So Jesus came to Israel and covered them. And then God didn't appoint a worm, but he appointed an evil to come and destroy Jesus. And when Jesus was destroyed, it exposed the hearts and minds of men. So much so that if you're following through the daily office readings and Peter gets up in Acts chapter 2 and he begins to preach Christ crucified and he starts with men of Judea, whom you crucified, the Son of God, and they all say, what can we do to repent? Jesus is both our shade and the scorching heat. He is both my life and my death. I can't find life in him if I don't go through that. He raises me, and at the moment of raising me, he's also killing this fleshly, carnal, indulgent, opinionated, racist, moralist person that you see standing in front of you. 
I can't get to the other side of that and maintain my private opinions. I can't get to the other side of the cross and associate other ethnicities with snobbery and all the other garbage that I do. I can't get to the other side of that cross and think that I'm any more moral than anybody else. It kills me of all those assessments of myself. I would argue that it's the withering of the plant that did more to transform Jonah than the covering of the plant. Because the minute he said, I really loved that plant, God said, well, I really love Nineveh. Gotcha, touche. And here's the reality. The place of his comfort and the place of his discomfort was the same place. He didn't move. In the place where God brought comfort, God also brought discomfort. And if we are only looking to anchor ourselves into places or races or moralities or social networks or churches or homes or neighborhoods or anything where we'll only feel comfortable, we'll move every time God burns the plant away. And we'll try to find a place that has another plant. He will always burn your comfort away when you're where you're supposed to be. He wants us to be comfortable with repentance. He wants our comfort to be approaching him back after he approaches us. He wants our comfort to be in what we don't know. He wants our comfort to be in what we're not certain about. He wants our comfort to be in the voyage and the adventure of getting to know him. On this side of eternity, all we will ever do is grow. All we will ever do is transform. And so if we're looking to stay the same, we're asking like Jonah, just kill me now. He's saying, I'm going to bring you in and out of comfort. I'm going to give you enough comfort to rest up for the next time I'm going to make you uncomfortable. He, I'm not, he's not trying to drag us along. He's not trying to exhaust us. He's not trying to be evil or a monster. But he's saying, rest up because I'm going to wither that plan away again. And then it's going to happen again. And it's going to happen again because eventually when I see him, I'll be like him. But he's starting that process now. So whether you're in a storm and you know you are like me, you know you're in the weeds, this is for you. And if you're so comfortable and so at ease because everything seems right, I'm praying that a scorching east wind comes. And notice it's an east wind. That's where the sun rises. That's where resurrection comes from. That's where Judah is located. Praise and resurrection and transformation comes when that scorching east, that scorching resurrecting wind comes and takes away your comfort and you see how far you've come and you say, okay, we have a little bit more to go. That should be the story of our life. That should be the story of our life. We're not looking to just settle in. We're looking to be made comfortable so we can breathe and get ready for the next mode of discipleship and then breathe and then get ready for the next mode of discipleship. And if it's not happening in a room filled with people who know that we are children of the originator of the universe, where is it going to happen? The world out there is exhausted because they're trying to find level ground. And we're here to say we're always going to be climbing. But every once in a while, he's going to allow us to stop and take a breath. <laughs> Part two of kayaking and then hiking up Mount Beacon. Once in a while, I was so happy when Reed was like, hey, can we just take a minute? I'm like, yeah, no, if you need to, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, Reed, cool, 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 cool. You know when you say cool like too many times in a row, you're like, no, 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 cool, 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 that's good. 
so glad that he needs to take a break right now because I can't breathe. All you could do is whisper. You having fun? Yeah, no, yep. <laughs> he, that's God though. God says, you look like you could use a rest. But the problem is we just start to idolize it when it comes. I've always said hiking Mount Beacon, that if you don't do that work, you can never get to that view. But the view is bigger and better than the work you did to get there. So every time he stops you on your climb, breathe. And then when he says, let's go again, get uncomfortable again. Because when we get there, we will look back. When we see what we have, when we see him, we will turn around and say, we did no work at all. No work at all. We did nothing. He did everything. If we could get softer, less certain, and more faithful, the world out there might want to walk in here. Because we don't go one day's journey into Nineveh. Somebody here, Jesus went three days. And on the third day, captured the entire city. Not just of Nineveh, but all of our Nineveh hearts. See, Jonah could only go one day, but Jesus could get the other two. And he could get to the third day. Why don't we stand to our feet? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.